Hear the word of the Lord. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Let's pray together. Gracious God in heaven, thank you for the great love that you have shown us, that you would come among us in our Lord Jesus. We pray that you would fill our minds with wonder, truth, and love as we study your holy word together this morning. Lead us into worship of the Son of God. We pray in his mighty name. Amen. Amen. Well, this morning we are looking at the famous uh, first chapter of Matthew, which describes the conception and birth of uh, our Lord Jesus. And in this short little passage I just read, we find the heart of what Christianity is all about, the story that we call the gospel. And what it means to be a Christian is that it means that you believe that this story of the gospel is true. And uh, a common question about the gospel, a question you may have had at some point, is why is it that Christians always say that the only way that you can know God, the uh, only way you can spend eternity with him, is by believing in this one little story? Why is this one little belief about Jesus the determining factor of whether you are right with God? It seems arbitrary. Why don't we have something like, if you're a loving person, why isn't that the determining thing? Or if uh, you're a decent person, you kind of treat people decently in your workplace, why isn't that the determining thing? This seems so narrow to believe in this ancient, strange story. Well, anyone who uh, is a psychologist, anyone who's studied human life, human uh, behavior, will know that how a person acts, what you and I do, uh, how we talk, how we interact with people, is always a symptom of things that are deeper in us than simply our behavior. Right? There are deep emotions that live inside us that cause us to talk to people a certain way or to act a certain way. And underneath our emotions are profound, deep beliefs about who we are and about 
what the world is and who God is and who other people are and where, where we're living. And so to simply say that God cares about our behavior is superficial. God cares about something far deeper in us. As Jesus says, it is out of the abundance of the heart that the mouth speaks. God cares about the abundance of our hearts. What is the abundance in our hearts? So what belief needs to live in the deepest part of humanity to change us? That's a question I want to put to you. What belief should live in the deepest parts of humanity's heart to transform humanity? What belief would do that? Well, Christians say that the deepest belief that needs to live in a, Christian, a person's, a human's heart, is not a command or a law or a rule. Those things won't change you. Rules won't change you. What needs to live in you is a story, the true story of what God has done in Jesus that we call the gospel. It is a story that when it is embraced in the heart, changes not just your behavior, but all of who you are and all of how you see yourself and how you see God, how you see the world, how you see life. And so what is that story? That's the question we're asking this morning on Christmas. What is the story that God intends to live inside of us? And this passage that I just read summarizes the three main themes of that story, and this is what they are. That Jesus is God, that Jesus is King, and that Jesus is Savior. Three themes that summarize the story that is at the heart of what it means to be a Christian, that God calls us to embrace in our hearts, and that changes us from the inside out. And so we're going to look at each of those themes this morning. So this is the first one. The first theme of the story of the gospel is that Jesus is God. That is, the man Jesus, or the baby Jesus, is God taking on flesh and dwelling among us. And you can see that particularly in two places in this passage. The first is that, so Mary, who is the mother of Jesus in the passage, conceives by the Holy Spirit as a virgin, and her husband Joseph decides that he's going to divorce her. This famous story. But an angel meets him and explains to him what's happening. It says in verse 21, look at what it says in verse 21. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Now, what does the word Jesus mean? Some of you may know that Jesus means Yahweh saves. And Yahweh is the God of the Old Testament. And so Jesus is named the Lord, the God of the Old Testament, saves. But then Matthew goes on to explain because for he will save his people from their sins. Now, you would have thought that Jesus would say, that it, this, the angel would have said his name is Yahweh saves because Yahweh is going to save his people. That's not what the angel says. He says, Yahweh saves because Jesus is going to save his people, which is to say Jesus is Yahweh. It's a very subtle way to say Jesus is the God of the Old Testament. And if you didn't pick it up in the name, then Matthew is more explicit uh, in the next verse, verse 22, where it says, All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Jesus is God with us. God become a man. God dwelling with us. And so the first thing that the gospel says is that in Jesus Christ, God became a human. And the fact that Jesus is God answers two important questions for us, both who is Jesus and who is God? And let me talk about each of those questions first. First, the question of who is Jesus? 
Um, and one of the things that happens throughout the Gospels, if you read about the life of Jesus and the teachings and the things that he says, he says over and over again, he identifies himself with the God of the Old Testament, which you think about it is an incredibly shocking thing to say. I mean, imagine here in Bellingham that up at Western, they invited a guest lecturer to come who was well-known, and he said, there's a guest lecturer come. He's a novelist. You know, he tells really compelling stories. He knows a lot about human psychology, and, and, and actually, he's also a political activist. He's just a brilliant, artistic thinker, and he's coming to address Western's community. And so, the, you know, the auditorium fills up, and everyone comes, and the man starts saying all these profound things about humanity. And he says, and I want to share with you the reason why I know all these things is because I made humanity. I made. Before the universe was, I was there. And I dreamed up humanity. What would happen? They'd probably stop the lecture. I, I guarantee you they would not invite him back. They would say, oh, we're sorry. We apologize. This man is crazy. He thinks he invented the universe. But that's precisely what Jesus says. He invented your digestive system. He invented Mount Baker. He invented narwhals and, and moss and iguanas. And if someone says that, you would say he is mad. You would not say, wow, what a profound teacher. What a wise teacher. We should follow him. We should invite him to teach our, our, our children and our young people. Um, we would say, uh, this is a respectable institution. He does not belong here. And yet, these are the claims of Jesus. And not only did his closest Disciples believe that. The people who lived with him for three years. You know if your roommate is God or not. And they lived with him. And they thought he was God. And then a whole civilization, really for the next 1,800 years, acknowledged that Jesus was God. And literally no one ever in history has made a claim like that. But also, no one has ever made a claim like Jesus has. But also, no one who reads the Gospels about Jesus' life sees this person and says that he's crazy. They say there's a profound sanity. There's a wit to him. There's a love. There's a, there's a you know, he, he disarms the broken and he welcomes them and he challenges the oppressors. And so C.S. Lewis famously put this dilemma this way. What do we do with Jesus? He's not mad and yet he claimed to be God. He puts it this way. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. So the fact that Jesus is God tells us something profound about the man Jesus. But it also answers the second question about who is God. Not just who is Jesus, but who is God. What is God like? How does he think? What does he do? What does he think of me? The Bible says, if you want to know what God is like, you look at Jesus. He will show you what God is like. He is the express image of the invisible God. He shows us God concretely in flesh and blood, which is a also a surprising thing to think about. Because, you know, most of us, when you try to answer the question, what is God like, what do you picture? You know, you picture a group of guys sitting around at the pub with their beers, and they're like, what do you think about God? You know, and, and they just making up ideas, right? It's like, I think God's like this, and I think God's like this, and, and everyone knows we're just guessing. And so you can believe whatever you want because we're just making it up. But, you know, uh, when I was a high schooler, I 
I got in a lot of trouble as a high schooler. I dropped out of school. I left home when I was 15, and my parents had me sent away for a year and a half to a behavioral modification program. And I, when I came back, I was a senior. I was a fifth-year senior, so I was in a new class of people who didn't really know me. And there's a guy that I later became friends with, and he had heard about this guy, Nate Walker, who'd been sent away, and he said, oh, man, this guy must be bad. He, you know, he got sent away for a year and a half. He dropped out of school, and he, and he said that he had this picture in his mind that I was like this big buff guy with a goatee and tattoos all down my arm. And then, and then he met me. He's like, you're Nate Walker? That's not what I was picturing. And, and what happens is you can speculate about what a person is like until that person walks in the room. And then as soon as that person walks in the room, all the speculating stops, all the guessing stops, because the person can speak for themselves, and that's who they are. Well, we can speculate about who God is and what he's like, but now in Jesus Christ, the real person has walked in the rooms. And it means that with Jesus, our speculating stops, and we have to start listening to God and let him speak for himself about who he is and what he's like. And it turns out um, that we find out who God is in Jesus, and the, the answer of what God is like is delightfully shocking. Actually, if you turn to page three in your bulletin, I, I wrote, put a quote from N.T. Wright. N.T. Wright is a well-known New Testament scholar, and this is how he says it. Let us suppose that this God were to become human. What would such a God look like? This is the really scary thing that many never come to grips with. Not that Jesus might be identified with a remote, lofty, imaginary being. Any fool could see the flaw in that idea. But that God, the real God, the one true God, might actually be like Jesus. And not a droopy pre-Raphaelite Jesus either, but a shrewd Palestinian Jewish villager who drank wine with his friends, agonized over the plight of his people, taught in strange stories and pungent aphorisms, and was executed by the occupying forces. To say that Jesus is God is, of course, to make a startling statement about Jesus. It is also to make a stupendous claim about God. What is God like? You want to know what God is like? He's like Jesus. Actually, it's been my experience with, you know, I've had people come to me and say, you know, I've been a Christian and God has not been having my life go the way that I want. I'm angry with God. I don't like God. I don't want to follow him. I don't want to listen to him anymore. And I just respond. I say, so you don't like Jesus? And they say, well, I like Jesus. I like Jesus. Well, if you like Jesus, you like God. <laughs> Because Jesus is God. He, is, he shows us what God is like. Whatever you imagine that God is like, that should be corrected by the person of Christ. And so the first thing the story of the gospel is about is God becoming a man in Jesus. And it answers the questions both of who is Jesus and who is God. But the story is not just about God coming, but also that God came to do something. And that leads to the second thing the story tells us, not just that Jesus is God, but also that Jesus is king. And this passage I just read begins by saying this, verse 18, look what it says. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. 
Now, as someone who didn't grow up in the church, maybe some of you didn't grow up in the church, I always thought that Christ was Jesus' last name, kind of like Nate Walker, Jesus Christ. And then I came to find that, oh, no, Christ means the anointed one, the Messiah, the promised king of the Old Testament. So essentially what Matthew is saying at the beginning of the story is you, you could, the, the original readers would have heard this verse as saying, now the birth of Jesus, the king took place in this way. Matthew understands that he is recording the birth of the true king of the world who has come to live among us. And the Old Testament gives a majestic vision of what God intends to do when his true king comes. It's an amazing picture. I actually want to read to you one description. This is from Isaiah chapter 11. And this is the description of the kingdom. It says this. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Jesse was the father of King David. And so this is coming from the line of David. This is a king. And a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness. He shall judge the poor, which to judge the poor means to defend the poor, and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with a rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fatted calf Uh, Together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand in the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Here is an amazing picture of a world set right. All the things that should be usually are warring with each other, tearing each other apart, are now at peace and walking together as friends. This is what the Old Testament promises. And there is something deep inside of us that is longing for someone to come and make the world like that. You know, you, you, my family just watched the latest Star Wars, The Last Jedi. I won't tell you what happens. But the, the whole Star Wars story is about these two versions of the kingdom, you know, the, the dark side and the Darth Vaders who are making the world oppressive and the Jedis who are supposed to be these heroes of justice who are going to make things right and, and who care for the oppressed. We long, there's something deep in our psyche that is expecting this to happen. And this part of the gospel, that Jesus is the true king of the world, tells us that this story is about something far bigger than all of us as just individuals. You know, some of you might think that believing the gospel means believing about me as an individual going to heaven when I die, which is certainly precious truth of the gospel. That is true. Jesus offers us eternal life. But it's something far bigger. You know, in the assurance of pardon, that, that Anne read for us uh, during the, from Revelation 21, Jesus says, Behold, I am making all things new. 
I'm setting my creation right again. I am going to bring peace. That is what the promised king of the Old Testament is going to do. And, um, but one thing that is so interesting is that when I say to you, God is going to set things right in the world. Jesus is ridding God's creation of evil and violence and oppression and envy and greed and death and suffering. He's going to bind the nations of the world together in love. Most of us, when you hear that, you probably think that's a happy thought, right? God rids the world of evil. Why is that a happy thought? Because we think that evil is something that's out there in the world. Uh, we, you maybe, who do you think of when you think of the evil of the world? Maybe you think of, you know, warlords in some other part of the world, or maybe the other political party that you're not a part of. What, whatever thing that you label as evil, it is always an us and them. I'm on the good side, and evil is on the bad side, and someone's going to go fix them. You know, it's kind of like the first Avengers movie. Sorry, how many movies am I mentioning here? Uh, <laughs> The first Avengers movie, there's a hole in the sky that opens up and all these evil aliens are coming to attack New York City and the Avengers are protecting all the decent people of New York City from the evil aliens. It's very clear those ugly aliens are the bad guys. And I'll tell you, the Jews of Jesus' day, they kind of saw the world that way and they said, you know, the Romans are the bad guys. They're oppressing us. And when the Messiah comes, he is going to crush our enemies. And the gospel, the story of the gospel, twists all that on its head. Because Matthew, here at the beginning of Jesus' life, doesn't say that Jesus is going to save his people from the dirty Romans, the evil ones. What does he say? Look at verse 21. So she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Not from the Roman sins, from their own sins. Not from the other people's sins, not from the evil out there in the world, but from the evil that is inside of them. Jesus is the king who came to save the world from evil, but the problem is that we too are a part of the evil. Evil is not something out there, it is something that is inside each one of us. So how can Jesus the king rid the world of evil and love the evil at the same time. And that leads to the third part of the story. It's not just that Jesus is God, not just that Jesus is king, the promised king is going to set things right, but also that Jesus is savior. And that's the question. Loving evil people and ridding the world of evil people at the same time. Well, in a subtle way, the answer to that question is in this passage because Jesus' birth was a scandal. You see that there in verse 18. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit, and her husband Joseph, being a just man, unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. And, you know, by the way, oftentimes people will say things like, you know, back in the old days, whenever this happened, they believed that you could just magically get pregnant. And we, now we're scientific people, we're much smarter, we know that you, that can't happen. That is not true. Joseph knew how people got pregnant. That's why he was going to put Mary away and say, hey, listen, I'm not going to marry you because I know you got pregnant somewhere else. And it wasn't until the angel came and corrected him. So, but the gospel begins with an embarrassment, with scandalous beginnings. It shows that the essence of Jesus' mission as Savior was to be 
embarrassed and shamed and even scandalized for us. Jesus doesn't run away from scandal. He lives in it. And ultimately, Jesus, the righteous one's scandal, will be to bear our sins upon himself on the cross to take the wrath of God that we deserve. He dies the death we should have died. And so as we come back to the comments that I made at the beginning of the sermon, what beliefs, what deep belief needs to live inside of us that would transform us? I want you to think of the power of having this belief at the center of who you are. What if this was the belief you had? Jesus, who is God, Jesus, who is the true king that the world has been waiting for, who will set all things right, loved me enough to pay for my life with his own blood. Imagine if that defined you. Imagine if that lived inside you, grew inside you. It was a life. It was like a seed that was buried deep inside of you. Imagine that was your identity. What would that do to your sense of self-worth? You know, as a kid, I collected baseball cards. I remember my favorite baseball card was Frank Thomas rookie card, upper deck, that I had in a plastic case. And I showed it to my dad once. I said, Dad, this baseball card is worth $10. And he said, show me someone who will pay you $10 for that, and I will believe that it's worth $10. And what he was saying is something is only worth what someone is willing to pay for it. Show me someone who's willing to pay for it, and that will show me its value. If you are in Christ, your worth and your value is the very life and blood of the Son of God, the true King of the world. Have that live inside of you, and what will, do, what will that do to your self-worth? What will that do to your sense of security that I am a loved one? You will find no worth or security anywhere in the world like that. And that is why Christianity is not about what you do. It's about what you believe. It's about having an honesty about how broken we are, that we're a part of the evil in the world, and combining that with a trust that we are deeply loved by God. We are deeply loved in Jesus. We are washed. We are forgiven. And so this is the gospel, that Jesus is God, Jesus is King, and Jesus is Savior. If you don't believe he's God, the gospel ultimately can't give meaning to your life. If you don't believe he's king, you won't leave everything and follow him. But if you don't believe he's savior, you won't know God's unconditional love for you. We need them all. So if you're here this morning, if you're not a Christian, you don't know this hope, I invite you to believe. God calls you to believe. If you have been a Christian for years, I invite you to walk in this hope that you have heard from the beginning. Let's pray together.